Back in uh, what seems like almost a lifetime ago when our eldest daughter was about the age of our youngest granddaughter, uh, we were part of a, a little church of Christ in Robinvale up on the Murray River and I had the privilege each Sunday of doing announcements, I was the church secretary at the time and so I would come up to the front of the church and stand on the very low platform with the 25 or 30 members of the congregation spread always in the same seats, you know, creatures of habit and do the announcements and it so happened on one occasion uh, that Natasha saw her daddy at the front of the church and so decided to make her way down to where I was. Now, you've got to understand that she was the first baby that had been born into the life of the church for quite some years and so everyone kind of doted on her and, and a number of people saw this rather interesting drama unfolding and she was just at that kind of toddling stage and I can't do it. We should get Eliza up here so she just kind of walks and the arms go like this and she got about halfway down I thought, what am I going to do about this? because it sort of breached the decorum of the church for, for you to be standing up the front with an infant, probably wouldn't worry about it so much nowadays. So I thought, oh, this is going to be awkward. And this is what happened, without a word of lie, as she was making her way down the centre aisle, as I was standing there, I put up my hand like this, went like this, pointed at the back, and would you believe it, <laughs> as she was walking, she saw that and just did a U-turn... <laughs> and walk straight back to it. I have never experienced anything like it since, let me just say. <laughs> and it, it, it was one of those marvellous, it was a marvellous moment because the whole congregation saw it. And I can say this, if we had prayed and raised someone from the dead, it would not have created the same amount of stir. What power! What awesome power! I am so glad she didn't make a second attempt uh, because chances are it would have totally blown my cover. What power there was in that moment. And I, I look back as you know, one of my fondest memories. It was a bit like just a moment ago, you were kind of standing there and I was thinking, I've got, I got a lot of power here. You know, do I keep these people standing or do I get them to sit down? We're going to talk a little bit about power today and power is seductive, isn't it? Power's the kind of stuff, once you get a bit of a taste for it, it's hard to, uh, to stop feasting at that table. And power, of course, comes in all sorts of shapes, all sorts of forms, all sorts of uh, avenues. We're going to talk this morning a little bit about the power there is for the church, the power that is available for the church as part of our ongoing series where we're thinking about the church, the power of the church. There are a couple of ways I thought about going this morning in dealing with this question. The first way uh, was self-indulgent in some ways because I love a bit of church history and I thought this would be just the perfect opportunity to talk to you about how the early church morphed from a very organic kind of home-based uh, persecuted oppressed group through the first three centuries into under the time of Constantine the Roman Emperor the religion of the state. How did that happen? How did the church go from this marginalised uh, small group of people to, to the place where they actually uh, engaged with the state and became, in some senses, the state religion? How did the church that was powerless become so powerful? It's a really interesting study. 
and I could indulge myself by doing that, but I thought, no, I won't do that, even though we could track the way that the church grabbed for power and how that actually caused all sorts of dysfunction in the church, how it actually meant the church had power that really was illegitimate in lots of ways and used it in illegitimate ways. That's one of the avenues that I thought we could go, decided to park that. The other, perhaps a more obvious one and the one that I originally started to think about was, let's talk about uh, the living reality of the Holy Spirit at work in the lives of individual believers and more broadly in the church. There's something to talk about when we want to think about power, isn't there? That's power. If we're going to talk about power, that's real power. You might remember, of course, in uh, the book of Acts when uh, Jesus said to his disciples who are waiting in Jerusalem, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes to you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. There's much that we could say about the power that God gives us, the power of the Holy Spirit that's still at work. And as I was thinking about it, I thought, my goodness, I've only got one morning. Uh, I don't think that's going to be enough. So, uh, let's park that idea for the moment too, although it would be a very legitimate power to talk about. Let's talk about another kind of power that is uh, perhaps sidelined or shelved or perhaps not even considered by some people, uh, power that's focused in one little often misunderstood word uh, which, but which nevertheless is a source of significant power for the individual believer as well as for the church a word which is as unpopular as it is misunderstood. What word would that be? Humility. Let's talk about humility as a source of power in the church. How can being humble be powerful? That's a question most people in our world would ask. I mean, a humble person's a pushover, right? A humble person you can just kind of bully and get your way. Well, that idea could not be further from the truth and I want to put it to you this morning that a humble heart is actually a very powerful tool in the hand of God and a humble church is what God uses to transform the world. I'll say that again, a humble church is what God uses to transform the world. Is that true? Historically, it is true. And here we can delve a little bit into church history just for a moment because the question that we ought to ask is how did that group of marginalised, persecuted believers actually become this enormous, powerful church? How did, how did these people who were nothing really in terms of the world end up uh, creating such, uh, such a history and such an enormous uh, influence in the community? I've often struggled to know how to, how to protest um, if we could talk about this just for a minute, how do, we, how do we as Christians address moral decline in our society? It's one of the questions I've wrestled with over the past 20 years. How do we engage with our secular world when there are questions, for example, um, some years ago, uh, legislation that was changing uh, laws around euthanasia, for instance, or abortion, or same-sex marriage, or name any of those issues. How do we engage with that? And I'm a great believer that Christians ought to be engaged in the political process. We ought to engage with our politicians because if they don't hear from us, they'll hear other voices. But how do we do that? How do we do that without kind of grasping for what I'd like to call the Christendom model of Christianity where the church was at the centre, where we had the power, 
where people listened to us. I really rather liked what Matt said a couple of weeks ago when he talked about how the church more recently perhaps has been pushed to the margins and I think it's good for us. It's good for us not to be at the centre, it's good for us not to have all of the power and authority because that's always led to abuse. It's good for us to be on the margins. How did that early church transform the world that they were part of? Well, I can guarantee you it was not by going on protest marches and it probably wasn't by writing letters to the emperor. It probably wasn't all of the ways that we might normally do it. It was actually by being the church. It was by their humility. It was by being Christ-like with their neighbours. It was by picking up the children who'd been abandoned, the babies that were abandoned. It was by looking after the sick. It was by visiting those who were in prison. It was by going into the arenas and caring for those who were there. It was by being Christ-like. That's a rather interesting thought, isn't it? That God used that church, that early church, to transform the world, not because they had power, but because of their humility and their servant hearts. There's some obvious applications that have come out in a few moments, aren't there, if you think about that. Matt made the point too that uh, the, the, the Romans ended up, the Roman emperor in particular, ended up noticing this and I've read some of these stories too. The Roman emperor wrote to some of his priests and said, you know what, if you guys don't start looking after our poor, those wretched Christians will and they'll start becoming Christians, we can't have that. Because the Christians were going about the business of being Christ-like. How annoying. But it transformed the world. Humility that changed the world. A powerful work at, uh, uh, sorry, a powerful force at work in the life of the believer and a powerful force when it's harnessed by the church. And we need to embrace that. We need to embrace it because we're a large church by most standards. We're a big group of people. We are widely known in our community, we are human, we are sinners and all of that's a dangerous combination because it can so easily become a matter of pride for us. We need to embrace humility. So let's talk a little bit about what humility looks like before a couple of applications to put into practice. Four things, just four observations about humility. The first one is this, humility always gives God the credit. Humility doesn't grasp for credit itself. I had an email this week from a former colleague, an American guy, who wrote to me, I've not communicated with Patrick for probably close to 20 years. And Patrick sent a message through our email stuff, uh, through the office, and he said, David, I'm, I have some of your course notes that you wrote years ago, and I'd like to use them for some courses I'm writing for some students from Myanmar. Would you mind if I used them? I can't even remember them. But I thought, what an in interesting demonstration of humility, someone who wanted to give credit where credit was due. I said to Patrick, you go for your life, claim them as your own, I don't mind, I don't even have them anymore. But he said, no, they'll be really useful to me. And so my, uh, my permission to him was absolutely forthcoming. But I was impressed by his humility, he didn't have to do that. He could have used that and claimed it as his own and there's the risk for us sometime, isn't it? When something good happens and we're involved, gosh, I worked hard, wasn't I a good person? Didn't I do a good job? Paul wrote to the church in Corinth 
Um, and, and Paul could easily have taken credit for a lot of the work that went on in Corinth. You know, he was a very strategic ambassador for Christ in Corinth and many people came to the Lord in Corinth. But he wrote to the Christians in Corinth because they were saying, you know, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos. And Paul said, wait on a second. It's not Paul and it's not Apollos that you ought to be giving credit to. It's actually God. We are just servants. When it comes to the church and growing the church, it's God who makes the church grow. Humility gives God the credit. Second observation quickly, humility acknowledges God's providence. In writing to that same church, uh, there was, and you can read it in 1 Corinthians, a sense in, in what the Corinthians were saying, you know, we are wonderful, we are wise, we have all this knowledge, we are the best... And Paul said to them something really cutting in a way, 1 Corinthians 4, 7, here's a good question, what do you have that you did not receive? It's a rhetorical question. What have you actually got that you didn't receive? What's the answer? Nothing. Nothing at all. Everything we have comes from the hand of God. The third observation, humility serves others. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 to 8, Paul said to the church, Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. A humble person serves other people. One of the abiding memories I have of our time overseas was conducting end-of-year retreats for our graduating students. Typically, I got the class, uh, the Bachelor of Theology class, there might have been 20, let's say, each year. We would take them somewhere if we could couldn't always take them somewhere just because of tribal fighting or whatever uh, and we do a retreat where we would uh, just inject into their lives something of our lives and at the very end of the retreat we did something that was really quite upsetting for some of them got them in a circle and said uh, we're going to do a foot washing ceremony now this is in the context of a culture where the big man is really significant. I don't know if you understand when I talk about big man, I'm not just talking about physical size. Uh, a big man in, in a Melanesian context is someone who has power or influence or is a, an orator or uh, is a tribal elder, not necessarily a tribal elder but you know someone who has some money, influence, that kind of stuff. And, and, and I was automatically a big man because I was an outsider from another culture and had, had the wherewithal and at this particular time um, I was also the acting principal which automatically makes you a big man and so uh, they would, that's <laughs> impressive I know, thank you, uh, they would expect that they would serve the big man because uh, ultimately I would be able to return that in some way, in some kind of favour or whatever and so we said we're going to do a foot washing ceremony, we're going to get in a circle, you don't need to take your shoes off because they don't wear shoes. Some of them had never worn shoes. And so my staff and myself and two or three other lecturers who are also big men, I guess, would get down on our knees with a bowl of water and a towel and wash their feet. Now, you remember the ruckus that that caused when Jesus did it with his disciples, right? What did Peter do? Lord, Lord, you shouldn't be washing my feet. I should be washing your feet. And Jesus said, well, if this doesn't happen, you'll have no part of me. I need to serve you, Peter. And I had students and I can remember and they objected strongly, no David, you shouldn't do this, this is not for you to do. And I said, yes, I need to do this. And in some cases, there were literally tears. This is it, such a confronting thing and yet what we wanted to do was to drive home 
in a culture of big man mentality that if you wanted to be great in the kingdom of God, you needed to be what? You needed to be a servant. You needed to humble yourself. And let me tell you, when you're washing a a foot that has never seen a pair of shoes, it's a very interesting, humbling experience. Podiatrists dream, or nightmare, depending (laughs) on how you look at it. Because they, you know, they... There were some interesting feats. But it was a a lived-out metaphor of what it actually meant to be humble. If you're going to be great in the kingdom of God, my next point, uh, you need to be humble. And that's a point that um, Jesus made in Mark chapter 10, verse 42 to 44. Anyone who wants to be great needs to be your servant, and whoever wants to be first needs to be slave. For not even the Son of Man came to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. James echoes this in James 4.10. He said, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. So the question then is, how can humility be a powerful force in the life of the church? Well, let me just tell you another story about a friend of mine whose name was Dave. Dave and I worked together for a number of, uh, a number of years running Alpha courses. Many of you are familiar with Alpha courses. Dave loved Alpha courses. He was an evangelist at heart. He was a mechanic, actually. That was his profession. He was, he was how could I describe Dave? He was kind of square. He was, um, he was very, very well built. And he loved the Lord and he loved evangelism and he loved Alpha. And years later, he was still running Alpha in his church and he came to visit me on one occasion. He said, David, I've run into a problem with my Alpha courses. And I said, what's the problem? He said, it's the church office secretary. How could the church office secretary be a problem to the Alpha course? He said, well, this person, and I have no idea who it was, uh, no matter what happens, this person seems to put up roadblocks. I book a a block of time and, oops, um, I muddled up the booking. I want to use these chairs. Oh, no, you can't use those chairs. No, that's... There was just roadblock after roadblock after roadblock to Dave running the Alpha course. And it seemed this person was the epicentre of those roadblocks. And so his question to me is, what should I do with this person? Because I just want to throttle this person. You ever had that experience? No. Good. (laughs) Dave was delivered. And my response to him, this is the good pastoral response, I said to him, Dave, don't fight fire with fire. Uh, respond instead with grace. If you're spoken to harshly, like if this person, you know, says hard words, uh, respond with kindness. If you criticise, don't say anything. And my friend, it is an application of what Paul said in Romans 12, 17 through 21, where Paul said, do not repay evil for evil, be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, I will, uh, sorry, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. If he's doing, in doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Don't overcome uh, evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, Dave was really taken by the idea of pouring burning coals. (laughs) He liked that concept. But here's the point, though we might like to do uh, that on occasions, and I'm sure we've had 
uh, those kinds of experiences. The approach that Paul's outlining there by taking a humble approach is immensely powerful because it leaves room for God's power. And this is the point. Humility actually allows space for God's power to be demonstrated in whatever way is best. And I'm sure that if David took things into his hands, and they were big hands, it would have ended badly for him, for the church, for the person in the office. And I have no idea uh, what happened as a follow-up to that story. But I trust that Dave went back and said, you know what, I'm not going to treat you the way that you're treating me. I'm not going to cause the problems that you're causing. I'm just going to continue to serve humbly and trust that God would work it out. As we humble ourselves, we're not grasping for the power that's not ours. We're letting God's power be at work in whatever situation it might be that we're in. It's a principle that I've been thinking quite a bit about this week. Our humility, our humble posture allows God's power to be displayed and to be seen because I'm not trying to steal the limelight. I'm not trying to steal uh, the kudos, if you like. In terms of Christian witness too, humility is also a powerful tool. These um, words were written by Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4 verses 11 to 12. He said, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anyone. Now, it's really important to understand the context of what Paul's just written there because the Thessalonian church was being persecuted for their faith. And you can be very confident that if a person in Thessalonica became a Christian, it caused a ruckus in the community, not another one. These wretched Christians, what are they up to? Uh, and so Paul says, try and keep your head below the parapet, so to speak. Keep your head down. Don't draw attention to yourself. Do your best to live a quiet life. One of the things that really, uh, that I find, how can I put this politely? <laughs> you have no idea what I'm going to say, do you? <laughs> That's okay, neither do I. <laughs> One of the things I find a little bit repugnant sometimes is the really loud kind of televangelist type stuff that goes on sometimes. Let me put it the other way. One of the things that actually draws me, one of the things that actually anchors my faith is looking at people who have walked the journey of faith humbly for years. The person who gets to 80 years old and served the Lord all their life, they might have not done anything by worldly standards particularly spectacular, they might never have been up in lights, their name might never have been known beyond their own family or their immediate community, but they have faithfully prayed and read the scriptures and served and gone about the business of being Christ-like. That's impressive. That humility is actually really something I find quite attractive. The, the opposite, not so much so. Humility, really significant in our service and in our witness. It's uh, in a difficult passage that Peter uh, wrote um, in 1 Peter 3, 1 to 2, try not to filter this as I read it. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands. Uh, we're not going to talk about that. So that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by, their, by the behaviour of their wives when they see the purity and reference of your lives. 
Well, Peter's message there is, let your life be a witness to those around you, your humility, your gentleness, your quiet spirit. It actually links back um, to what Peter said in 1 Peter 2.12, where he said, live such good lives among the pagans that though they may accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And then, in 1 Peter 3.15, uh, Peter says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this, how? With gentleness and with respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. I had a really interesting experience Wednesday night this week. I spend Wednesday nights out at South Bandiana and there were a few soldiers about. I sat down with two young guys, they early 30s probably, and, and just chewed the fat for an hour, I suppose you might say. Just listened to them tell stories. And it was towards, um, towards the back end of the night and they said, and what do you do? <laughs> We've told you all about us, what do you do? That, I take that as an open invitation to say, well, I'm the pastor of uh, a church. Oh, you're a religious person. And thereafter became really interesting conversation on the existence of God and the reality of faith and does what you believe matter. You know, one young guy there was saying, well, it doesn't matter if you're a Buddhist or a Hindu or a Christian, or, as long as you've got something. Well, how do you answer those kind of questions? With gentleness and respect. One of the guys said to me, oh, I don't, I don't mean to be offensive. I said, you're not offensive. Please feel free to speak. I'm not going to argue with you, I'm here to listen, I'm here to engage with you, I'm here to talk with you, Let, let's drive that conversation. How do you do that? Well, Paul says there, uh, sorry, Peter says, with gentleness and respect. And once again, our approach to witnessing to unbelievers starts from a place of humility and it allows God to do his powerful work. Because it's not you and I that causes someone to be convicted and redeemed, is it? That's a work of the Holy Spirit. When uh, we left that little church in Robinvale many years ago, the congregation gave us a gift. It was a picture that went on our wall. I've no idea what happened to it. It's probably, we passed it on uh, some time ago. But it was a picture with a verse from Isaiah 30, 15, which says this. It's a great little verse. In quietness and confidence is your strength. In quietness and confidence is your strength. The power of the gospel and consequently, the power of the church is not found in places people might be inclined to look. It'll never be found in our size. It'll never be found in the numbers that we get on a Sunday. It will elude us if we think it's going to be found in our bank account. It will be elusive if we think the noise, the, the razzmatazz of our services are, are what's going to make us great. It'll run through our fingers like water if we try and manufacture power by playing on emotions or manipulating emotions. We could try that, but it never ends well. Greatness is found in humility and the power of God at work in a church that is humble. It'll be found in being quiet before the Lord. It'll be found in modelling ourselves on Jesus who made himself nothing, who took on the role of a servant and having been made in human likeness, humbled himself and became obedient, even obedient to the point of death, Paul's words from Philippians. That's humility personified, isn't it? Let's pray together. 
Father, we do pray today for something which is counterintuitive as far as our culture is concerned. We pray that you will keep us humble. And in praying that, we know, Lord, that there will be times where we grasp, because we're human, we grasp after power, we look for authority, we seek ways to make our names great. And if you do answer that prayer, it's not going to be very easy for us. But we do pray that you'll keep us humble. Keep us humble remembering, Lord, that all things come from your hand. Keep us humble reminding us that you are the Lord of the church. Keep us humble, Lord, uh, reminding us that we are dependent entirely upon you for every breath that we take, every heartbeat that takes place within us. And as we continue to serve, Lord, help us to serve with humility, pointing people to Jesus, not to ourselves, pointing them to our Saviour, not to our good works, pointing to the redemption that there is in Jesus Christ, not from the benefits of being part of our community, though there are benefits, but they're found entirely in you. Lord, we thank you for the example, Jesus, of your humility, your model of what it is to be a servant. Help us to follow in your footsteps, we pray, every day, through this week, wherever you take us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.